Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today is Friday, so we're joined by my co-host, Benham Ben Talibu. He's a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. And Benham knows all about Iran's proxy militias and so much more in the region. Uh, Benham, uh, happy Friday. Happy Friday. Always a pleasure to be with you. Always a pleasure, Benham. Looking forward to our conversation. And uh, today we're going to also bring in Joe Trusman for the discussion. Joe is uh, obviously my co-host on Monday here at Generation Jihad. He's a senior research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal, where he focuses primarily on Palestinian terror groups and as well as Hezbollah and all things happening in Israel and in the region. Uh, Joe, uh, welcome to Generation Jihad. Hey, Bill. Uh, hi, Ben. I'm pleasure to be here. Hey, Joe. Good to get the gang together. Right. Well, let's. Uh, we got a, a little bit to talk about today. Uh, the Israelis killed a, a, uh, an advisor for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in Syria. Uh, we'll break that down. Um, we'll talk some Hezbollah and uh, rocket attacks in the region, et cetera, um, as well as the results of the Iranian parliamentary elections and what this means for the region, for Iran and for the region. First, we'll, we'll start off with the IRGC advisor. He was killed in Syria. Benham, uh, what do we know about the attack? Where did it occur? Um, who is this advisor? What's his importance, if we, if we even know that? Um, give, us the, give us the deets. Uh, well, the stuff is still breaking, but essentially it was an attack on uh, an IRGC uh, advisor. Technically, this is interesting because he's a member of the IRGC Navy. So uh, traditionally, you've seen people uh, who were providing since 2011 support to the Assad regime, training missions to the Assad regime come from the IRGC Quds Force. In the middle of the Syrian civil war, we saw large rotations of the IRGC ground forces in there as well. So not just doing the training, but also doing the fighting. Uh, there was a training equipment mission to create a Syrian version of the Iranian Basij, which since 2008 has been a subunit of the IRGC ground forces. Interesting that this individual is a member of the IRGC Navy. It doesn't mean that there weren't other branches of the IRGC present in Syria before, but it might mean that uh, these distinctions that we draw between the five or six branches, depending on how you count the counterintelligence branch of the IRGC, uh, are less substantive within the IRGC than within in our own forces between the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. For example, it's reported, but not confirmed, that his rank is that of a colonel, if I'm doing the translation of Sarhang from Persian properly, which I think I am, uh, and then it was an airstrike uh, in Banias, and it also led to the death of, I think, two or three Hezbollah uh, members as well. Is that correct, Joe? Um, yeah, that's reported. I haven't seen anything from Hezbollah yet confirming the, their so-called, you know, martyrdom, but, um, but yeah, that's definitely the report. So we'll see, uh, if they, they publish anything in the coming hours. And, and lastly, think, as, as you guys okay. know, there's been a whole string of these attacks. Uh, December is indeed, I think when a general, if I'm not mistaken, it was a brigadier general, uh, was killed. So at least a one star, uh, even the Iranian press, uh, is talking about the uptick in Israeli targeting in Syria. They're not linking it to anything post-October 7, but uh, if I really had to you know, read the tea leaves between Israeli strategy and Syria, this is not just the war between the wars. This is not just the erosion of a capability. The attacks that particularly are taking out key personnel, the advised train and equip mission that have provided the 
sustainability to the Iranian mission in Syria, that are personnel with familiarity uh, of this country. Um, the Israelis are sending, I think, a strong signal to the Iranians to not escalate, to not turn on the Syrian theater more than it has been. Um, and in particular, as we get closer to a potential uh, ceasefire, as well as, of course, to Ramadan, uh, how things on Israel's other fronts uh, heat up or don't heat up will matter greatly. So I think this is qualitatively different than the mow the grass or war between the wars or campaign between the wars operations. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that uh, Tehran will internalize qualitatively, losing more personnel than quantitatively. Uh, you know, just strikes on warehouses or depots or the erosion of manufacturing capabilities or the loss of certain PGM kits. Yeah, the Israelis certainly seem to understand that the going after the personnel is something that hurts the Iranians far more. Equipment's replaceable. People is a little bit more difficult. For sure. Only Uncle Sam saw it that way, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really think this is a huge failure in the Houthi campaign. The Houthis know they'll get those weapons will be replenished, and um, and the U.S. is using its its limited stockpile of anti uh, or air to air missiles and other um, you know other resources and battling the Houthis. So it's it's interesting. Ben, the fact that he's Navy, any possibility that you know, given the Houthis' use of naval weapon platforms, uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles, anti-ship cruise missiles. Do you, do you think there's a possibility that the uh, Iranians are outfitting Hezbollah with this type of capabilities, or do they currently have this type of capabilities? It's a great question. In the 2006 war, we saw basically a, we believe, unlicensed, um, a unlicensed copy of a Chinese uh, anti-ship cruise missile, the C-802, that the Iranians have used against the INS Hanit. It was always known that Hezbollah has kind of these Iranian copies of Chinese anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, they were quite effective, uh, but they had a slightly more limited range. The Houthis thus far are the only proxy to have paraded, to have tested, and to have used anti-ship ballistic missiles. Those fly uh, on a very different trajectory, higher and faster. Because it's higher and faster, it's harder for those missiles uh, to actually uh, hit a moving target, but conversely, it can also be harder to intercept as well. Um, nonetheless, in August, September 2023, there was um, a Lebanese kind of, you know, pro-Hezbollah media outlet propaganda reporting that the, saying that the Israelis alleged that a older variant of a single-stage solid-propellant ballistic anti-ship ballistic missile with those electro-optical seekers was given to Hezbollah. No official Hezbollah source confirmed the story. No picture of the missile has ever been put out there. But if it does end up being true and the war in the north escalates and it really does become a third Lebanon war, I could see a maritime component, however limited, um, being used by Hezbollah to try to keep the Israelis to operate you know, from beyond a distance. Uh, how successful they might be, you know, they have very limited uh, you know, training on, on this front. You basically move rail launchers or tells to a coastal area, you're basically asking for the IDF to go after you. Um, so it'll be a growth industry for Hezbollah to have to develop this capability. But even a single shot, as 2006 proved, uh, could be lethal. So a single successful shot can offset a bunch of interceptions or a bunch of left of launch things that the Israelis can and likely will do uh, in the face of this capability coming through. Joe, Hezbollah has launched some longer range uh, rocket attacks against Israel and Israel has responded. Um, let's get into this. Tell us what's been going on over the last several days. Has Hezbollah escalated the situation in the area? Are we still at that tit for tat stage? Are we still at this slow simmer stage of the fight? I mean, tit for tat. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, Hezbollah does something and, and essentially the Israelis respond. Uh, however, it is becoming more destructive and I am seeing uh, the goalpost moving. Okay. And what I mean by that is 
We're seeing more um, rocket attacks further uh, south into Israel. Uh, for example, there's uh, this week there was an attack in the Haifa area. Haifa is still in northern Israel. Don't get me wrong, but uh, also we're seeing attacks in in the Golan and even the southern Golan. So, which is still you know northern Israel, but it's it's moving south. Okay, but in response, the Israelis are doing the same. They're attacking further north into Lebanon, into the Bekaa Valley, for example. Uh, so, we're seeing this slowly change these. Uh, the amount of uh, or the locations of, of of attacks, so which is not a good sign. Okay, we don't want to see that. But um, there's a couple notable things we did did mention Haifa, um, one of the major Israeli cities in northern northern Israel. That's uh, in that, that area came under attack. But also a couple of things Hezbollah did. Well, one in particular, actually, they were they've been trying this for months, by the way, and finally. At least that we know of, for the first time, uh, they were able to down a, a Hermes 450 Israeli uh, drone. So this isn't just like one of those tiny drones um, that Israel uses, you know, to scout um, uh, Hezbollah positions along the border. Uh, these are high flying drones. These are very large drones. So uh, the Hezbollah uh, was able to down one of these drones, and I know for a fact they've been trying for for, all, for several months. So uh, that was uh, that's notable. Okay. Uh, also, I do want to mention on this front with Hezbollah that uh, and we we see it every now and then. We don't see a lot of it, but uh, the introduction of foreign fighters in Lebanon, uh, specifically uh, this one is uh, these are Syrians. Uh, so we know Islamic Jihad and Hamas and other Palestinian armed organizations operate in uh, in southern in southern Lebanon, but this in this case these were two Syrians. Uh, belonging to Islamic Jihad in Syria, that were killed by Israel fighting in southern Syria. So that's that's interesting to me. We've seen Syrians being killed. Uh, we've seen uh, Turks belonging to Hamas killed in uh, fighting in southern Lebanon. Of course, we've seen um, Hezbollah fighters and uh, Pal- and other and Palestinians as well. So so anyway, I always find that fascinating. Foreign fighters joining this war, right? Uh, against Israel. So, and in the earlier stages of the war, we heard some of the Iraqi groups are going to send fighters to Lebanon to fight Israel. I don't know what happened there. I never saw anything. I never saw any any open source evidence to suggest that that actually happened. But nonetheless, that's what's happened, at least in, in the past week in the North. But things are gradually getting worse. That's for sure. Yeah, it seems at some point, Israel, you know, given the problems it's having with the mobilization, with keeping and so I believe the number is upwards of 100,000 uh, civilians away uh, have been evacuated from the north. At some point, this this has to come to a head. On the issue of foreign fighters, yeah, I fully expect, you know, I'm sur- actually I'm surprised that Iraqi militia fighters, even if they're not fighting under their banners of their organization, Sibel Haq or Hezbollah brigades, et cetera, you know, Soraya Salam, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I expected to see more of them, you know, coming in and fighting individually or fighting with other groups along the border, but we really haven't seen that. But perhaps they're keeping their powder dry or perhaps they're not going to actually enter the fray, but that certainly bears watching. Are you surprised, Joe or Benham, that we haven't seen more Iraqi uh, militia fighters in, involved in the fight in northern, uh, in southern Lebanon, really? Uh, I'll say this. This is very interesting, and I still haven't gotten to the bottom of this. So uh, the Islamic we all... We all know the Islamic resistance in Iraq, how we were very familiar with them, especially what they've been doing in the last months against American troops. But interestingly, this has happened on several occasions 
where they've claim claimed to have attacked Israel, not uh, Israeli territory. Uh, sometimes it's the Golan. Okay, so that that I can understand. The Golan, you know, they could fi- fire a couple of drones, uh, and then you know passes through Syrian territory, and then it's the Golan. Okay, but there have been cases where the Islamic resistance in Iraq has claimed that they've attacked a uh, port of uh, uh, of uh, uh, they've attacked Ashkelon. Okay. Ashkelon, that's on the other side of Israel. That's on the Mediterranean. They've also said they've attacked um, a Mediterranean, uh, a targets, Israeli targets in the Mediterranean as well. So to me, the way, so I think about it is like, well, how are they going to pull this off? They're not going to send a drone through Israeli territory. It's not going to make it, obviously. It's just, it just won't. So how else are they going to do it? So I'm thinking, well, could they be sending it from Lebanon? Maybe you know sending drones to Lebanon, and then they say, if it's them doing it, uh, I, I still haven't figured that out. But or it may just be nonsense, right? It just may be propaganda. But I know in one case it wasn't. Uh, uh, the, even the IDF said that they they intercepted a drone from the in the Mediterranean. All right, uh, and uh, so I know in one case it, it 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 can't be just pure propaganda, pure nonsense. So uh, maybe I it wouldn't. I, I I thought about it, but maybe the Islamic resistance in Iraq. There are Iraqis in possibly uh operating in lebanon all right so maybe not you know going up to the the front and trying to you know shoot uh guided missiles at uh israeli targets uh but they may be doing other things so i think that's definitely a possibility but as far as open source evidence that's as far uh as as, as i've seen but i'd love to see more but that's just my kind of my take on it it's, it's definitely possible that they are operating in lebanon but benham would love to hear what you're saying what, what you think rather no, I, I strongly agree, and I, I think this was something that the regime in Tehran wanted to flex, uh, particularly after you know Khamenei made that speech in mid-October saying we won't get involved, but the axis of resistance will get more involved. And then in the month following that, you had the activation of the Iraq-Syria front, and then soon after Yemen, uh, but also the telegram, as you know better than I, propaganda of each of these groups saying that each one would be directly targeting Israel as well as America. Um, you know, Joe, in the past, you chronicled the very limited number of times uh, Iran-backed Shia militias in Iraq under the auspices of Islamic resistance even tried to directly target Israel from their own territory. Iran twice, not publicly, but from their own territory, went after uh, some of these Israeli tankers with drones. But in terms of personnel, uh, I've seen, at least on the Iranian side, no reporting on, you know, these mixed uh, jurisdictions um, other than the ones that we already know, which is the you know, flirtation with some of the Palestinian groups uh, in Lebanon, which is how you got Salah Ruri there, um, the kind of the no border, if you will, between Lebanon and Syria, leading to the kind of the flirtation since 2013, the Assad regime and Lebanese Hezbollah, and more importantly, the no border, quote unquote, uh, between uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, where the kind of the Iran-backed Shia militias kind of have, let's say, passe on at least two of three major highways. So in this case, just because they can move to the immediate next door neighboring country doesn't mean that they're all going to be able to surge into one place uh, against Israel. But I think certainly in terms of propaganda, uh, that is something that the regime wanted to play up. Yeah, it's just, it seems to be a bit of a hole in the game for the maybe even logistically a hole in the game. You know, maybe they have a challenge with that. Yeah, I'm curious as to the reason why are they being held back? Are they, or as you note, are they having logistical problems? Is there problems where? Maybe the leadership, I, I doubt the leadership doesn't want to fight. You know, I, I, I got to imagine they're chomping at the bit to get involved, you know, on the ground. But, we're, you know, again, maybe they're, maybe they're waiting for the right moment. Maybe that moment never comes. But the, hopefully for the Israelis, it doesn't. Uh, so let's uh, move on to recently, the Yoav Galan. Uh, 
the Minister of Defense for Israel recently said that if a ceasefire is declared with Hamas, that uh, Israel would honor it. And Hezbollah quickly issued a response. Ben, what was that response? Um, what does this mean? So it was even something of a debate within our office, and this might be worth kind of fleshing out all of us, plus David Dawood at some point. About a day and a half after, um, Hezbollah said that if there was a ceasefire, and again, at the same time, there is this news, I think Joe Biden uh, this week was saying that a ceasefire could come as early or a hostage deal could come as early as next week, so the week that's coming up right now. Um, in that world, a lot of these different Iran-backed groups were signaling what they might do. Again, the Shia militias, proving how loyal they were to Iran, essentially turned off the fire for uh, the couple of weeks of ceasefire that we had in uh, late 2023. Uh, here again, Hezbollah was saying that if there is an actual ceasefire, that they would uh, you know, pause their operations. Um, is this a response to the Gallant comment? I think it's more a response to the, you know, the genuine, the general talk of a ceasefire. And it's to lure the West into the sense of, well, if there's a ceasefire, then the attacks will stop. So all we really have to do is push for a termination of the conflict in its entirety. And then all of these issues will be resolved, which for, and I, and I was mentioning this, uh, with Joe last night, you know, for, these groups with high levels of ideological coherence, they have this kind of preset either from the regime or from themselves, but together it's been fused, uh, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, you know, worldview. They mean what they say. Thanks to the Islamic Republic of Iran, that ideational view is, uh, they can act on that ideational view with a capability. So they have the ideology and they have the capability. Then once you begin to turn off and on the conflict, and they realize that they can control when the conflict is turned off and on, you have just vindicated a strategy for them. So they have the ideology. The Iranians have given them the capability. And then if you, you know, every time you play into this, if we do a ceasefire, if we end the conflict, if we do this, you've just permitted them to dangle now forever a sort of Damocles over all of Israel and America's policy options against them. And it's, again, none of this stuff is to say that a ceasefire is bad. None of this stuff is to say that particularly pre-Ramadan and particularly with the humanitarian situation in Rafah, we should not be caring about the facts on the ground and the people on the ground. We absolutely should be. But it is also to say that the adversary has a strategy for how best to weaponize this. And we have to be honest about this. They will be weaponizing this. You know, I always find it. I'm curious your, your thoughts on this, uh, but Joanne Benham, you know, at times you'll hear, you know, Western policymakers and leaders say, well, Iran really doesn't control these groups. They don't, they, they can't tell them what to do. These are independent actors and they're doing what they want. And we can't, you know, and then at other times, Iran fully controls these groups. And it's, and it, you know, they, they, and they seem to pick the narrative that fits their needs at the moment. Well, we don't really want to launch strikes against a, a militia to respond to attacks because um, we don't want to hold Iran accountable for what for their actions and directing them because Iran doesn't really control them. And then, and then at times like these, we roll back to try to get let's get the Iranians to get them to stop. And it can't be both ways. And the Iranians seems to be masterful and at times, you know, exercising its control and then at times playing the game. Well, we don't really, you know, these aren't they're independent actors. What are your thoughts on that? Is is Iran, you know? Play, playing Western policymakers, Western leaders, when it when it comes to the issue of control, I have a view, but Joe, you go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just say very quickly that you know I think Iran obviously they they have control, right? But I think with some groups they have more control than others, right? Proxies specifically, they are definitely in control of them. 
I think they have influence, a lot of influence on groups that they maybe uh, they'll, they'll support via funds or uh, the weapons like Hamas. All right. So, but nonetheless, um, it's pretty evident, at least in this war, how how much Iran controls every, uh, these proxy groups and its network of clients. Okay, uh, we saw it with the ceasefires, where essentially every everyone shut down when there was a ceasefire. Okay, that just didn't happen. You know, it wasn't a coincidence. So, um, it's 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 just that's why the thing is this is why Iran creates proxy organizations uh it, it wants to distance itself from what uh from from attacks right it doesn't want to be held responsible that's why it creates proxies right so um we see this a lot we've seen this in iraq for years uh and we've seen it with palestinian organizations uh so i in in the end it's, it's nonsense iran is heavily involved here right uh, and I know Benham, you have a very good way of uh, putting this. I, I heard it. La- I've heard it several times, actually. I heard it last night too. Uh, uh, by the way, we keep uh, referring to last night Benham, uh, me, and uh, another colleague, uh, Brad Bowman, who's also been on Long War Journal. We had a panel uh, here at FTD, and uh, we uh, talked about Iran back group. So anyway, uh, Ben Benham, please. Uh, I'd love to hear what your response is on this because I, I know you you, you put it uh, distinctly. That's the politest way someone has ever said. I've heard you say this so many times that I'm sick of it. <laughs> right, right. I'm not sick of it. I like hearing it. <laughs> yeah, oh, I do Listen, too. I, I, you know, that you guys know, especially in the LWG audience knows intimately, I love to talk, but, you know, because I do live and work in DC and now 11 years last month, uh, counting, knock on wood, with FTD, uh, we also do engage quite a bit with policymakers as well, and in particular, military audiences. And if you can't give them things in threes, uh, you're not doing your job well, you know? So if I can't do something in a breakdown form, a bullet pointed form, I feel like I'm not conveying the facts well. So to talk about this entire axis of resistance, proxy terror militia network, you know, we talk about three different paradigms, the create, the co-opt, and the control. The whole point of creating or co-opting these proxy groups initially is to mask your hand, to be able to enter a conflict earlier so you can shape the escalation in the direction of the conflict, to be able to control that escalation much more cheaply than your adversary uh, as well. So you have the deniability, you have the escalation management, and you have the cost factor. Then you add in the ideational factor that this gets into their view of resistance and asymmetric warfare and self-sufficiency and all of that as well, and self-sacrifice. That's really just the cherry on the Sunday. Um, but to make the strategy operational, Iran has to look to jurisdictions that are you know, weak or failing or failed states. Uh, and it has to look to particularly people who are downtrodden and dispossessed. This strategy does not work, uh, you know, uh, in an entirely cohesive, well-integrated, well-functioning society. Uh, it works when people believe they have nothing to lose and harbor a grievance that turns into an enmity, that turns into deep-seated animosity, where if the Islamic Republic comes along with a little bit more of a plan and a lot more money and a, and a couple of guns, you'll do something about it. And in Lebanon and in Iraq, you know, good examples are Hezbollah and the Badr organization, for example. That's the create model. Uh, in places where there are war zones or rejection or terror forces or militia forces, um, Iran, if it sees that those forces are arrayed against someone it has an ideational or strategic enmity with, uh, it co-ops them and it does with sustained political and material and financial support. And good examples are Hamas in Gaza and the Houthis uh, in Yemen. Uh, ultimately, the goal is to control. And the way we should think about control is... Uh, like a, you know, like a model UN committee, if you will, you will hear no 
more than you hear yes, meaning seek forgiveness, not permission. Everyone is at the table because they are part of the same thing. They believe in the same thing. They have broad portfolio power. Um, and ultimately, uh, you are going to be able to act on a very kind of imprecise goal that you know is set for you that you also have some kind of a vested interest in, and you are supposed to work towards achieving it with your own means. And the only times you'll have guardrails put up is when the Iranians want to enter the fray and say, hey, you know, don't fire here or fire here. And even sometimes you'll see in 2023, for instance, the cold, you know, the beginning of the cold detente with Saudi and Iran, that is what led to, you know, that, you know, fake uh, Jake Sullivan comment about several months of peace in the Middle East, making the region the quietest it's ever been. Uh, but even then, I think there was one Shia militia uh, that uh, in Iraq specifically, uh, that did not want to, you know, listen to Qani's uh, pleas and entreaties to, you know, stop the fire. And even now, you know, Kataib Hezbollah, there was some drama between IRGC messaging and Kataib Hezbollah messaging after Qani's reported late January trip. Uh, but the vast majority of the militias did listen and do listen because they know where their bread is buttered. And ultimately, Iran gives a different length of leash to a different kind of actor based on the different kind of capabilities they have and based on the different relationship Iran has with it. And you know what? If one person continues to fire after a ceasefire period or after a duration when after a period of time when the Islamic Republic doesn't want things fired, it's not going to be the end of the world because the Islamic Republic can do a big tent, very kind of ecumenical approach to this stuff. Hamas literally had aligned itself against Iran's sole state ally in the Middle East. 2011, 12, 13, and move the headquarters from Damascus to Qatar. Now Hamas is the entire po focal point of our conversation since October 7. And since 2017, no thanks in short part to Salah Ruri and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Hamas was brought back into the acts of resistance fold. So big tent, broad trend lines, you know, the IRGC is like a CEO here, trying to get everyone to shoot in the same direction. And when it wants pauses, it'll tolerate fits and starts and stutters. And this is actually a relatively disorganized approach, but it allows for local actor grievance and local actor agency because the broad strokes of those grievances and the broad strokes of those agencies align much more so with the IRGC's revisionist and revolutionary vision. So I think that is really the secret sauce here. Yeah, it's, you know, them, the Iranians allowing a degree of agency, it's a, it's a smart play for them. They, these groups have more buy-in if they believe they're acting in their own interests while acting in the greater interests of the access of resistance. So yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Benham. And, and you for, as well, Jeff. A super small, for example, I have no doubt that the Houthis really believe they are defending Palestine. Absolutely. They Absolutely. genuinely believe it. I think there was a very interesting video circulating online. I, I think memory may have done a translation of it. Um, rightly so, this was propaganda from the Houthis, but rightly so, the Houthis did not even allude to Iran there. They're not talking about being on the acts of resistance in this video. Instead, in this video, they were trying to generate more popular support and literally crowdsourcing, grassroots through video crowdsourcing of funding future missile attacks. Not just future missile attacks on shipping, but future missile attacks they specifically talked about, again, we're referencing last night, what Joe and I were talking about, which is missile attacks on southern Israel in Eilat. And there's videos of a son and a father in a small room watching a broken TV of success, quote unquote, successful missile attacks uh, being announced on southern Israel and everyone going to the post office and wiring money to the Houthis to sponsor further missile attacks. They're literally recommending crowdsourcing for future missile attacks. And so I have no doubt this is a genuine belief. And when there is a genuine belief based on a local grievance and the Islamic Republic, and again, 
put a capability in the hands of those at the local grievance, that's the secret sauce. That's where the win is for the Iranians. They, they're very good at appealing to the motivations of these local groups. Look, Al-Qaeda was very good at this, something the Islamic State has not been very good at, but has been successful for other reasons. Um, it's a winning strategy, um, particularly against us here in the West who don't understand the local grievances or don't um, really have the will to see these things through. Last, uh, last issue we'll discuss today, the Iran recently just concluded parliamentary elections. Benham, what are the results and what does this mean for the region? Uh, the results are still coming in, but uh, this was long you know, foreordained because uh, today was a, a quote-unquote selection for Iran's 290-person parliament and a selection for Iran's 88-person assembly of experts. The assembly of experts is allegedly the body that picks the next supreme leader and also uh, allegedly you know, is supposed to monitor the performance of the supreme leader. But if you think there is a group monitoring Khamenei's actions, then let's connect after for a bridge and a used Toyota I'm selling because <laughs> no one's monitoring that guy. In essence, uh, the trend line has been Iran, which is obviously an autocratic and Islamist uh, regime. Uh, ironically, you've had in historically uh, high levels of, of popular turnout while the population thought that even incrementally, if not stylistically, circa the reform movement, mid-90s, early 2000s, uh, they thought they could inch things along. With the collapse of that view and the embrace of, you know, revolution, you know, this is beyond regime change, the embrace of revolution by the street against the state. And you've seen this in more frequent and bigger and more nationwide boom and bust cycles of protests since 2017. The trend line is the more protests there have been, the less the popular engagement. So 2020, for example, which followed a boom and bust cycle of 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020 protests, February 2020 was the last parliamentary elections. It was the lowest ever, even official rates, which are inflated, historical turnout for parliament in Iran. 2021, in the summer, uh, the election, the election slash selection of Ibrahim Raisi, that was the last presidential election. That was the lowest ever presidential turnout in the history of the Islamic Republic. And that's even the official figures that they give. Now, you know, you've had uh, polls from unnamed regime organs talking about turnout being as low as 30 percent, uh, with 15% being in the nation's capital uh, in Tehran. There are some other Iranian polls that talk about committed voters, 9 to 15%, who are definitely going to be voting. Uh, the regime right now, in, you know, in Persian language media and the social language media space, they are talking about a second wave of people coming to the ballot boxes. Iranian military officials, the IRGC, the head of the armed forces general staff, the minister of defense, have all talked about a election with a high turnout being able to provide the regime with deterrence and security. Again, they use these things to feign legitimacy. But also, when we're talking about human shields, very interestingly, the regime will use any pictures of people as quite literal human shields to be able to rob the West of any pressure-based argument of standing with the Iranian people. So the pressure of the regime and stand with the people, the West will point to these optics. So the regime is trying to remove those optics. And, you know, what it means for the future is obviously, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran is not a democratic society, but uh, at age 84, Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, he's about to be 85, is thinking about his legacy. And what we see that has been very different under him is he's been able to keep Iran uh, in this kind of ultra hardline move, ultra hardline uh, kind of regime that he inherited in 1989 from the founding father of the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khomeini. And this guy, his legacy is keeping the anti-Americanism, keeping the anti-Israel, doing the anti-American stuff, doing the anti-Israel stuff, 
and not inviting a conventional war against him and his regime. And now that he's thinking about legacy to cement that ideology, he's not promoting the best and the brightest to the parliament, to the assembly of experts. He's promoting stalwarts, ideologues, ultra hardliners. Um, and there was a phrase that was said in the 1980s that applies again now. And this was said amid the cultural revolution uh, in Iranian universities in the 80s, they were when they were Islamizing the, revolu- the universities. Uh, the phrase was taqva na tavana, which is righteousness, not capability. And that's essentially who Khamenei wants at the helm for the next generation. Uh, so this really does tell you that the street and the state couldn't be further divided, that the regime will do anything to feign legitimacy abroad just to deflect pressure, and that ultimately uh, there is a fate worse than death, that Khamenei is planning for things to come uh, that will look even to his right. Uh, and the trend line also for us, for foreign and security policy people, uh, is that the more cohesive, uh, no matter how small the scale of elites, but the more cohesive they are, the more ultra hardline they are, the more they will engage in these things that we're seeing now. There have been 11 public missile operations from Iranian territory. There will be more October 7th because all of these proxies are still intact thus far as of March 1st. Uh, and if Hamas is not defeated, they have every intent on acting on their capability. And the Islamic Republic has every intent on acting on this entire acts of resistance, which they have created for a purpose. So nothing good, right, Benham? Nothing good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nothing good. But an opportunity for the West to highlight the gap between state and the street. You know, you don't uh, see a lot of, and this is not about Palestine, but you don't see a lot of Palestinian flags. You, don't, you barely see any in Iran. They're all over the Arab world. The Iranian street is very, very different than the rest of the street in the heartland of the Middle East. And if done well, you know, if, you, if one can deracinate the head of the acts of resistance, uh, it actually might be the most morally sound thing, but also the most strategically sound thing, because we wouldn't have to keep dealing with this boom and bust cycle of violence. Yeah, it's a shame. You know, the the one, you know, again, I'm not sitting here advocating a U.S. invasion, but we just don't seem willing to do the things that would encourage the overthrow of the Iranian regime. Instead, we genuflect to them and and react to the proxies. And it's to me, that's a strategy for not not winning and and possibly for losing. Last point here, uh, we are aware uh, of the reports of the death of uh, Palestinians as an aid convoy entered the Gaza Strip. The details of this incident, they're still coming in. It's all over the place, and we can't even begin to assemble what happened here. Joe, Benham, and I will we'll talk about this more in the future um, as, as more information becomes available. We just uh, figured it's too, you know, we'll often get into the fog of war, but th- this is a very polarizing issue, and um, it doesn't get any more foggy than this. A lot of, uh, you know, claims being circulated out there, and we don't want to substantiate anything at this point in time. Joe, Benham, thanks for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Always a pleasure and a happy Friday to you both. Thanks, gentlemen. Happy Friday. Thanks again for everyone listening to today's episode. You can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.